Welcome to the Australian Hiker Podcast, Australia's longest-running hiking podcast downloaded over one million times worldwide and providing you with an Australian perspective on all things hiking. We're your host, Tim and Jill Savage, coming to you from Ngunnawal and Ngambri country. This is episode 283 of the Australian Hiker Podcast. And in this week's episode, we talk about the Malavag Hiking Trail in Germany. We hope you enjoy. Before we get into today's episode, if you'd like to help support Australian Hiker and this podcast, there are a couple of ways that you can help us out. Firstly, by subscribing on your podcast host of choice so that each episode is available as soon as it's published. And if you have the opportunity, leave us a five-star review. Another way to support us is go to the Australian Hiker website at www.australianhiker.com.au and click on the supporters page and buy us a coffee. You can do a one-off donation or become a monthly supporter. All donations are greatly appreciated and help us to continue producing this podcast and blog. Now let's get on to today's episode. Previously, we caught up with hiker Mike Railton in episode 256 of the Australian Hiker Podcast to talk about goal setting. In 2022, he successfully completed 100 hikes in a calendar year, and at that time, we asked him for his bucket list of hiking trips he thought he was going to pursue in 2023. The hikes he had planned sounded amazing, and typically not ones talked about in Australia that often. So we thought we'd catch back up with him to talk about one of these trails, the Malavag Hiking Trail in Germany, to see what's so special about this walk and what he thought of it. Okay, so Mike, it's our pleasure to have you back on the Australian Hiker Podcast. Thanks, Tim. Nice to speak with you again. Now, previously we chatted with you on episode 256 of the Australian Hiker Podcast to talk about goal setting. Now, for those who haven't listened to that episode, tell us a bit about yourself. Well, Tim, I grew up in the um, 60s and 70s. I'm a few years retired from teaching as a geography and maths teacher. I've graduated from taking students on hikes and camps to doing it with my wife and sometimes family and friends. And we've been hiking pretty much all our married life, but over the last decade or so, we've really embraced multi-day hiking. And I have to say, we're hooked. I was going to say, I think that's uh, that's the thing. That's something I'm looking forward to when I eventually do retire, to have a bit more flexibility and freedom time-wise. I can highly recommend it. <laughs> Now, what are, the, what are the, the key and exciting hikes you've done over the last few years? Yeah, okay. In terms of um, key hikes, uh, we've started to accumulate a few. Um, but our favourites so far would have to be uh, the Kerry Way in Ireland. Really enjoyed that. The Three Capes in Tasmania. I thought it was an excellent, excellent hike. Three days of really, really good stuff. Yep. We've done quite a few of the New Zealand multi-dayers, and we've never been disappointed by any of them. I think they're all excellent. We did Hadrian's Wall Hike in the UK, and I do like hiking in the UK. They they just make hiking so easy. And the last one is the first truly long-distance multi-day we did was the European Peace Walk in Hungary, uh, Croatia and Slovenia. And uh, we did that oh, nearly 10 years ago now, and that was, that was fabulous. So they're the big ones that we've done, so... Yeah, no, I must admit, I uh, we did an interview on the Peace Walk um, uh, a year or so ago, and I, I hadn't heard about it before. And I'm finding yep. that um, 
my focus has certainly been on the US hiking circuit and the US long distance hiking circuit, but I'm finding more and more about what's available in Europe. And you know, in addition to what we're going to be talking about today, uh, there's just some amazing walks that are there if, if you just think to look and, and just move away from the US and Australia. Yeah, I've started to discover a few too. And every time I look, I find new ones. and They all pique my interest, that's for sure. Now let's talk about the Malaweg, and I'm not sure, quite sure if that's the right pronunciation, hiking trail. Now, before talking with you, as I mentioned, I hadn't heard of this trail. So why did you decide to do this trail? Yeah, well, until a few years ago, I hadn't heard of it either, Tim. So um, I didn't certainly didn't know how to pronounce it. And evidently, it's pronounced Malaweg. So just as a bit of a heads up there. I guess I first heard mention of it from one of our hiking companions on the European Peace Walk. Uh, He'd done it as a warm-up hike with a German friend, and he spoke really highly of it. And that's the first time I'd ever heard of it. Then a few years passed without hearing from it. Then one day on a hike uh, around Caranda in North Queensland, we were just doing a local hike there, just a half-day hike, we came across a German lady hiking on her own and she was hiking from Cairns to Coranda, which is a fairly decent hike for a day. It's pretty up, substantially uphill and a fair distance. Anyway, we just got chatting to her, and one thing led to, led to another. We found we had some common interests, and she used to live in our area, and we became friends, basically. And uh, she's got quite a decent resume of, of long-distance hikes that she's done, and she showed me a list. And I thought, wow, I don't think I've got enough time in my life left to do all of those hikes. So I said, okay, let's cut to the chase. How about you tell me which ones you think are your very best? And right up towards the top of the list, I can't remember if it was first or second or something, was the Malavik. And she happened to have a book on it. And that really got me very interested. And then just randomly in the last 12 months, a hiking friend of mine happened to mention that he was going to go to um, to Germany and he wanted to do this hike called the Malabeg. And I thought, that's it. Like, that's three times. So we were planning a trip to Europe and uh, I thought, well, I've got to check out this Malabeg hike. And um, I did the research and we got it locked in and we um, did it at the end of last year. Okay, that's, that's great. Now, did you, did you, did you uh, have any friends or relatives in Germany or have you been spent much time in Germany previously? No, I'd been once, oh, 20, no, 40 years ago. My very first trip overseas, I went to the Oktoberfest like a lot of Australian <laughs> folks did. <laughs> it hadn't been since, but we were with friends and one of our friends is German, so that made it very easy when it came to the language barrier. All right, that's good. And, and speaking of language barrier, did do most Germans speak English, or were you in remote areas where it wasn't so common? We tended to find that the older people weren't so good with their English, but um, everyone who was younger certainly spoke English. It was probably, in terms of all of Germany, it's probably less well spoken in, in the Eastern European area where we, Eastern um, German area where we were, compared to the rest. But yeah, you can easily get by. Okay, that's good. Now, tell us a bit about logistics. Uh, I've seen various distances, but you know, yep. what sort of length are we looking at? Is there a, a right or wrong way to go, uh, or is there okay. a compulsory direction? Yeah. Um, there's no right or wrong way to go. We did it clockwise, and I'm quite happy the way we did it. I think uh, we headed towards the Czech border, so 
basically it's I'll, I'll step back a step it's located in a region called saxon switzerland and i suppose the saxon part makes sense because it's in saxony it's like the republic the, the uh, state or region called saxony and then uh switzerland because early people thought it looked like switzerland the nearest large city is dresden which people may have heard of but the hike starts in another smaller city called perna about an hour by train away from dresden towards the czech border now it's designated to take eight days that's what they recommend which seems very very generous and we did it over eight days and you certainly could easily do it over five or six i believe and um and you still wouldn't be too stretched. We did it clockwise. It's sort of an elliptical loop. We followed along the Elba River towards the Czech Republic, and we got within about 100 metres of the Czech border and then um, crossed over the river to the south bank and then headed west back towards Perna where we started, and that completed the loop. Basically, it's on along canyon walls, or pretty much up and over and through and around canyon walls that are following the Elba River. Now, is there a time of the year? I mean, my picture in my mind of Germany is they get snow during winter. You know, is this something you can during winter time, or is it more a skiing trip at that stage? Yeah, uh, good question. First thing I'd like to say is that um, don't do it on a, don't do some busy parts on the weekend. There's a place called Bastai Brucker, which is like a bit of a tourist destination on the hike. It's got these famous stone bridges that are built, joining some incredibly high rocky spires. And it's built in, in the remnants of an old castle. And it's just spectacular. And you've got amazing views and everything. But on a weekend, it becomes mayhem with day hikers and even just tourists going visiting the place. So I would avoid that section on a weekend. And a rookie error on our part, we didn't. But um, in terms of the best time of year, we actually rode push bikes from Prague to Dresden uh, in the week before the hike. And that was in early September. And there were people everywhere. And it was the last week of their school holidays. And I think that was the reason. But we were worried that the hordes of cyclists and hikers along the Elba bike path, they might that might be sort of replicated the following week when we were out on the trail. Yeah. But we needn't have worried. Um, everyone's back at school or work from their summer holidays. And I suppose it's like in Australia with the Christmas holidays. As soon as they finish, the place you get the place to yourself. So we pretty much had the track to ourselves, except on the weekend yeah uh the weather was still quite warm at that that time of year and i certainly think that um in midsummer it could get really stinking hot like it's surprisingly hot for me as an australian i'm thinking geez even i'm finding it hot (laughs) so i'd I'd avoid peak peak summer and i'd certainly avoid school holiday times your question about winter i think that most of the year in midwinter the path is still open i think it's probably snowy and icy in, in parts, but it, they reckon that it's, it's open mo- um, most winters. So that certainly would be a possibility. I reckon autumn would be really nice with the golden browns of the leaves and the softer light, but winter with crisp, clear, clear air and snow and that sort of stuff, that might be a nice too. Spring, you'd have all the, the wildflowers in the, in the meadows and see each season really has its sort of appeals. Having said all that, I think... Um, Personally, if I was to do it again, I'd probably I'd go for probably midwinter just for a complete contrast. Yeah. I might regret it. I might regret <laughs> it. But <laughs> yeah, and I think uh, I think it would probably change the the clothing you're walking in as well. You probably probably got oh, the, yeah. got the full on without without necessarily being snow gear. You'd certainly be into the winter gear by that stage. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. 
Okay, now I believe this trail is also known as the Painter's Way, and my only assumption here is because it must have some wonderful scenery that the painters like. Is that the case? Yeah, you're, you're right, Tim. The, um, the it's called the Painter's Way. In fact, the direct translation of Malaveg into English is Painter's Way. So, but there's something a little bit misleading about the name, but there's also something misleading about the the region it's in. Like it's called. Uh, Saxon Switzerland, the region it's in, and it goes through Saxon Switzerland National Park. And that's supposedly because it looks like Switzerland, except it doesn't really. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the highest peak in the, on the Malaveg is 550 metres above sea level. And, you know, when you compare that with uh, Switzerland, like it doesn't, doesn't, com- uh, doesn't compete. Your elevation in Canberra, Tim, it would be about five hundred metres, wouldn't it? Something like that. Uh, I think our tallest mountains are around about eight, well, in this in the city at least anyway. Our tallest mountains about eight hundred and fifty, and then we sort of pick up some sixteen hundred metres uh, mountains yeah. right on the edge of the border. But yeah, there it's not a huge altitude gain, particularly within the city area itself. Yeah, so that gives you some indication that it's certainly it's hard because they 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 look spectacular, but they're just not massive. The mountains are really craggy and there are lots of um, green meadows below them. So in some ways, if you're at a real stretch, maybe you could say it looks a little bit like Switzerland, but uh, hardly to me. The second thing is that the name Painter's Way. Certainly more accurate because, like you said, there are so many, there's so much beautiful landscape and it really did attract lots and lots of the famous landscape painters from Europe in the 17 and 1800s. Uh, people like uh, William Turner. They named all these other painters that had painted there too, but I'm not great. I'm, I'm no great art aficionado, so they didn't mean a lot to me. But um, we saw examples of the paintings they'd done. They had um, billboards with them and stuff, and yeah, you could see that they were well and truly inspired by the dramatic landforms. But why I found um, the painter's way name a bit misleading is that it wasn't only the painters who came to the area for inspiration. Authors, poets even musical composers, people like Hans Christian Andersen, Mary Shelley, uh, Richard Wagner, even the puppeteer Mac ja- Max Jacob, who invented Punch and Judy. He lived there. And all these artists get celebrated along the path in, in various ways. And um, in my opinion, it should have been called the artist's way, not the painter's way, because you know, you've got all the arts represented. And that, all for the same reason, I suppose. They're all inspired by just the beautiful landscapes and stuff. Now, you mentioned earlier on you did this walk in September and you also mentioned potentially that the uh, the autumn foliage would be pretty amazing. Was it was September a bit too early for the autumn foliage or uh, or you had you started to get it at that stage? It, just in a couple of places we found something. The higher, higher places where it was obviously a little bit cooler, you started to get the leaves starting to turn. But, yeah, we really needed another... Uh, probably another three or four weeks to, to really start seeing a decent amount of it, yeah. Yeah, so so what, roughly about the end of September into mid-October, probably a good time for the autumn foliage? Yeah, yeah, and it'd be a, a really nice temperature too at that stage, I reckon. Now, I noticed in some of the uh, the photos you sent me for the uh, the, the – the podcast write-up, and I'll put these on the uh, uh, the show notes for this. There are some pretty yep. amazing ge- uh, geological um, structures in there as well. Um, uh, that, yeah. and, that, and as you say, that you know they're not hundreds and hundreds of meters high, but they, it, it just looks amazing. Yeah, yeah, the the geology of the area really takes first prize in terms of the best attractions of the area. Um, 
what's happened is the and, and stop me if I sound too much like a geography teacher, <laughs> Tim. Um, the Elba River Gorge carved out um, an ancient sandstone plateau. So, and it's carved it out to the depth of, like I say, about four or five hundred meters deep. And so, what you're left with is all these incredible steep-sided canyon walls, tabletop mountains, um, caves, uh, crevices—you name it. So, these provide some pretty vast panoramas up and down the Elba Valley. And um, the canyon walls have been heavily eroded into some really crazy, craggy shapes, things like spires and towers of rocks as well as caves and uh, really narrow crevices. Some of them are hundreds of metres long, um, some some hundreds of metres high, and uh, strange monolith rocks that look like dinosaurs. Um, yeah. Having said that, you think, oh, well, it sounds like it'd be a bit inaccessible. But what they've done there, they've got these huge sets of steel ladders and bridges and even stairways that they've installed so that you can explore just about every part of the place. And when you when you we said before about the hike being about 112, 116 kilometres long, we ended up doing 125 because there are so many little side shoots you can go. And we didn't explore half what we could have done. So there's the main loop trail all the way around, but there are just little offshoots everywhere to explore little side things of interest. Um, there's even an elevator, would you believe? An elevator <laughs> join, joining one town to a little village high up above it. And I've never seen anything like that before in my life. But um, the scenery is definitely what the painters came for. And um, when you see it, you know why. All right. That's great. Now, in relation to the trail tread, um, I can imagine because it is Europe, there's probably fairly well-formed uh, natural trails and it's you're not having to fight your way and, and compete against the, the actual trail tread itself. Is, is that the case? Yeah, yeah, you're pretty right there, Tim. The trail's well-marked. Like, you just about struggle to get lost. There are places where it can, there, there are lots of side trails, so that's probably the biggest area for confusion, but it is pretty well-marked. And the trails trend, tend to be... Uh, reasonably even and well-formed and I suppose um, a lot of that's due to the fact that they've been there for so long. Um, underfoot it's mainly like a an eroded sandstone it's just a really fine quartzy sandy sort of um, soil that drains really well and um, so it's pretty easy to walk on. I'd say a small percentage uh, definitely less than five percent of the hike is on local roads or concrete paths my pet hate <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's only a small part. Um, definitely no need for boots. Um, these trails have been walked for literally thousands of years. So it's only the last 20 years or so that some of the ancient paths have been selected to form a continuous loop to make up the, the Malaveg. So the, the trails are pretty well established. Um, in terms of elevation change, there's quite a bit, even though we said, you know, it's only four or 500 metres. I think there's 3,600 metres, they they say, of total elevation gain over the whole over the whole hike. So 3,600 up and 3,600 back down again. So most days you're going up and down, up and down, up and down. And it might only be a couple of hundred metres at a time, but it is quite strenuous. Um, I think they rate two of the days as difficult even. And... Um, they're not extremely difficult, but they you know, they're challenging. Uh, just based on that, then you know, is there you know, 
what what sort of experiences for, or what sort of level of fitness would you say that the average hiker needs to do this trail? Yeah, I'd say you'd need a reasonable level of fitness. Like um, you couldn't go out there if you hadn't been, you weren't walking fit. You don't need to be able to walk 40 kilometres a day. You don't need to be fit like you need to be for some hikes, but you certainly need a reasonable level of fitness because there are, like I say, two challenging days. And even on the, the medium to moderate days, you certainly get a, a sweat up and you really know that you're maxing out your heart rate a couple of times a day. So <laughs> it's certainly... Yeah, it, it does well to be a little bit fit. All right. Now, you, you did mention that this is a circuit. So um, yeah, it, it, is it is it a, a, a total loop or is it um, uh, does it start, is it finish in a separate town or how does that work? Like, I'm, I'm um, hesitating here because it is a loop, but the start and the finish are not in exactly the same place. <laughs> You you actually start in an outer suburb of this, this um, suburb out of suburb of this town called Perna. It's in a suburb called Leventhal. And uh, when you finish, you finish smack bang in the center of per, center of Perna at the tourist information center. There's a big sign up saying you have finished, which okay. is actually a nice. T- it's a nice touch actually. I like that. Yes, I've finished. I've got a photo. I'm finished. So the start of the track actually wasn't as well marked as the end. But yes, definitely a loop, and uh, it a very elliptical loop because it goes all the way, it goes all the way to the east to the Czech border, and then all the way back again. But along the north side of the river first, and then the south side of the river on the way back. Okay. Now you mentioned um, weekends being busy and school holidays being busy. I mean, did you come across any other hikers when you were doing it, or were you were pretty much about it? Yes, we. Uh, there were days when we saw next to no one at all. It might have been one or two other people in the entire day. Uh, there were some really busy times, as I mentioned earlier on uh, the weekend at this place called Bastai Brooker. Uh, but most days it was very pleasant. You'd sit down for lunch and you may, it, randomly someone would come along, but most times no, there'd be no one. Okay. So, yeah, so in terms of being in a fairly developed country and the, the region is quite populated there are towns and villages everywhere so they've managed to um, set aside a couple of large areas as as national park and i think the fact that they've got they've got those large national parks means that it's not as busy as other parts of uh, germany are i think there might have only been one day out of the eight where we had no food options for the whole day so we had to make sure we took food with us but on the other days if we chose to we could we could have stopped at a cafe in a small village somewhere there'd be at least one small village each day somewhere along the way. In terms of accommodation, there's the possibility to through-hike, and we did meet other hikers who were through-hiking. But to do that, you had to stay in um, villages along the way, along the trail. And some of the villages are cute, gorgeous little places, so it would be a really nice thing to do. Unfortunately, you can't do this when you're camping because it's uh, camping is banned in the national parks. And you can only camp in designated commercial campgrounds, and there were only two or three of those in the whole in the whole area. So you would have to be centrally located if you're camping and radiate out. Um, the option we chose, we were with our friend Stephen Uda, and uh, Uda's my German friend. So we could share the cost. What we did was we booked a flat in the central location and headed out and back to the trail each day. 
this is made easier by the fact that they had this amazing deal in that part of the world. For the one euro a night bed tax that they charge all, all tourists or all foreigners to the area, you get free public transport. And man, do they have some free, they have some just fantastic public transport. They have trains, buses, ferries, trams, you name it, they have it available on a very regular basis. We stayed in, of all places, a, a railway station. And the railway station was called Crippen Railway Station. It was about 160, 170 years old. And it was a strange setup. The, the government had leased the railway station to, to this couple, and they probably did it throughout Germany, I assume. And this couple were allowed to modify the train station so long as the waiting areas kept the same and the platforms kept the same. They had to sweep down the platforms each day. <laughs> they actually had someone from the railway department turned up once a fortnight to check the condition of the station. But when they renovated it, they renovated it so they created a, a flat upstairs and a craft shop downstairs. So downstairs, they had, she, this lady was selling her craft and art. And, of course, it was summer. She was also selling um, ice creams. And then upstairs had this fabulous flat. So it was a fabulous place to stay, really convenient because train was downstairs, the bus stop was just out the back, and then 200 metres down towards the, the river, we had the ferry shop. So we could access every part of the track within less than an hour. We just had to plan what time we were going to leave. The only downside, of course, is that um, you know, you're staying in a train station. We didn't know that... Um, we're on the main line from Eastern Europe to Western Europe. So we're getting this car carrying trains, carrying hundreds of Skoda cars from Czech Republic or Slovakia, wherever they're made. And there would be, oh, I don't know how many a day, four or five of these a day rumbling through our station. And they'd start at about five in the morning and go through at about 11 at night. So <laughs> quite a rude awakening at five in the morning, having these car carrying trains trumbling trundling through but having said that great way to do it because we shared the accommodation costs shared the food costs and the transport was free so it meant you know we could stay do our washing and um, we didn't have to carry huge backpacks with all their gear either so you know always around we were pretty satisfied with their decision to do it that way okay well that brings us on to what was a typical day for you as far as what time did you get up, when were you hiking, and what time did you finish your day usually? Yeah, yeah. Um, we're generally pretty cruisy sort of start. We get up about 7, 7.30, make ourselves breakfast, get sorted for, for the day with all our gear, and then either head down to the bus stop or the, the train platform directly below, um, head off out to the part of the track that we're at. Like I said, it took up to an hour, depending on which part of the track we were up to. And we'd arrive somewhere between, say, 9 and 9.30 on trail. And then by about 3.30 in the afternoon, sometimes a little bit earlier, sometimes a little bit later, depending, because some days were 20 kilometres, 20-something kilometres. Some days were only 11 or 12. So it depends on the length of the day, but we'd finish mid-afternoon. And then we liked the process of going and getting our, our shopping. So we'd go and shop each day for our for our gear, for food, and uh, a few drinks as well. And I don't know if I should um, promote it here, Tim, but I couldn't get over the price of alcohol. We could buy a half-litre can of beer in a supermarket there for €55 Euro cents 
and then they gave you 25 euro cents back on the can. They <laughs> almost paid you to drink it. <laughs> so, yeah, we ate, we ate quite a few pastries, probably had a few too many beers, but, yeah, a very enjoyable time. Yeah, no, that sounds good. That sounds good. Uh, and now in relation to what, what did you do with typically with lunches and morning teas? Did you use the cafes along the way or did you, you bring some sandwiches with you? Uh, a mixture of both. So um, we tended to pack a lunch most days, but that didn't stop us having the occasional, maybe more than occasional coffee stop on the way with a, a cake or whatever. That depended whether there was anything available. Like sometimes the stop was at lunchtime and we would just get our sandwiches and sit out on a table somewhere and maybe go and buy a coffee to go with our sandwiches. So it, it depended. But most days we took the opportunity to to treat ourselves, think we're on holiday. So, And you can also – I think it was only one day when you couldn't access a shop at all um, during the day. Okay. I'm making it sound like it. I'm making it sound like uh, it's pretty well developed, but there was quite a lot of areas we walked through that were large, large tracks where you didn't see another person or another building. So, it's a mixed bag. Okay. Now, I believe the dogs are allowed on this trail. Is that the case? Or and did you see any? I saw in the villages, yes. Um, out on the trail, I don't think I saw oh, maybe once or twice. But yes, it's not a big thing. I've walked in the UK, like I said, we've done the Hadrian's Wall Trail and, and others, and over there, there are dogs out on the trail all the time. That doesn't seem to be such a big thing in Germany, but um, it doesn't. we did, definitely did see some, but it's not as obvious. Maybe just people aren't uh, that active with their dogs in Germany. I'm not sure what the reason, but it just definitely wasn't as noticeable as it is in England. Yeah, no, it's fair enough. I mean, I must admit, I, I know a lot of people that do like to take their dogs and they'll go through state forests. Uh, as opposed to the national parks in Australia where they're not allowed. But, you know, sometimes yeah. it's nice to not have to worry about dogs and keep an eye out for snakes for them as as well as you and keep them fed and watered. Yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah it's probably a, it's probably, it probably sounds like it's it's more a people trail, even though the dogs are allowed. Yeah, it definitely is. I, I don't think it's um, such a thing there, yeah. Okay, now, for you, what were the highlights of this trail? Oh, <laughs> I knew you were going to ask me this one, Tim. <laughs> I mentioned before about the fabulous scenery and the fact that you could access it by ladders and bridges and stuff. Well, the climbing of the ladders, some of these up to 100 metres high and into the narrow clefts, it was physically challenging, but it's also the fun part. It was like a, being in a giant bloody um, adventure park for me. And towards the end, once you really got match fit and zipping up the ladders, and it was good fun. Some of the alleyways and cracks, some of them were so narrow that you couldn't fit through front on. You had to had to sort of shimmy through sideways and uh, you're scraping your, your clothes all the way through. So it was uh, – I love that sort of stuff. So for me, that was probably the highlight. But there were, it was a, a toss-up between that and a few other things. Just the ability to be able to pick apples straight from the tree, all these ancient varieties of apples growing in all the different villages you're walking through. And just hanging over the fence and just dropping on the ground. So you just go and pick an apple and beautiful, juicy things. That and collecting berries along the way. It's just the sort of thing you don't get to do in Australia. Not in areas I'm in anyway. So I really enjoyed that. The other thing, though, is the overall feeling of the hike was almost that you're like hiking through an enormous outdoor museum. And the, the reason I say that is because it even had some interactive stuff. Right at the start of the trail, 
we were walking. We'd been walking about a kilometre or so, and all of a sudden you started to hear music in the forest. And at first I thought, am I going mad? I'm hearing classical music. And then I thought, oh, maybe someone's playing it as they're walking. But now it got louder and louder and louder. And eventually we came to a, a little clearing, and high up on a post was a loudspeaker. And it was, it was playing the music of the composer Richard Wagner. And then right next to the post or adjacent to it on the track was this enormous statue and tribute to, to Wagner. And I'm thinking, well, that's, that's just out there, totally out there, not the sort of thing you would ever expect to find in the middle of the bush on a bushwalk. So there were things like that. But continuing on the museum theme, there's also like you've got abandoned castles and hill forts. You've got um, still intact medieval fortresses on top of table ma- tabletop mountains. You've got abandoned mills and abandoned mines with all their machinery and that's still there, and you can explore those. Cute old world, world villages. You've got uh, thermal baths. People come from all over Germany to some of the little villages there because they've got these spa baths that, that have all these mineral waters and stuff. There's um, a former mental asylum and concentration camp and even something that appeals to me, a, a confluence point. I don't know if you've heard of a confluence point before. It sort of rings a bell, but I can't place it. Yeah, it's where you get a line, a whole line, a whole degree line of latitude, parallel of latitude, at, um, intersecting with a whole degree meridian of longitude. So they're reason, reasonably common throughout the world, but they're never in places where you can actually just come across and see one. Like you really, if I had to hunt one out on the Sunshine Coast, there is one and it's really awkward place to get to. And, it, and I don't know if anyone's managed to, to find it. So these, these intersections of lines of longitude and lines of latitude, they're sort of special for geographers. So it's a geography teacher and me coming out again. <laughs> and, and they had a little monument there for it and an explanation of it. And I thought it was a really nice little tribute. And then, of course, to finish off the museum sort of uh, uh, thing, the you've got the tribute, of course, to the famous painters at various points. But having said all that, that being such a positive, the negative side is that you're also feeling like you're in a giant outdoor museum and not in a, pr- a pristine wilderness area. There are times when you think, oh, it almost feels like I'm in a giant theme park. And the classic example is that Wagner thing. It, I mean, some people would love it. Some people would hate it. I was sort of er- slightly erring on the s- side of saying, yeah, yeah, okay, it's different, but I wouldn't want to see this in every national park or anything. So um, because the hikes developed from pre-existing trails in the area, you know, where humans have occupied the place for tens of thousands of years, there's obviously human impacts all through that the area. So coming from Australia where you get really pristine wilderness in places and you get lots of natural bush and so on, it comes a little bit of a shock sometimes to see so much development in places but like i said they've still got their big tracks of national park and on most days you felt you were out in nature but it's a it's a balancing act and i know that some people would go there and go no it's not my cup of tea i found it i found it fabulous because there was so much variety and the scenery is spectacular and i would recommend it to everyone but i know that some people it wouldn't be their cup of tea that sounds great. It sounds like there's this. There seems to be something for everybody, and and by the sound of it, you're, you're not having days where you, where you're saying, "Well, this is a terrible day," and the next day was a good day. It seems to be, you know, pretty much every day sounded like you you, you had something to, to see or do. Oh, absolutely! Every day there were highlights. That's for sure. Yeah. I suppose we're asking that question. Were there any negatives? Anything you didn't like about the trail? 
Yeah, that was uh, that that was probably the biggest thing. The fact that just in some places a little bit too too developed. I'm trying to think of anything else about the trail I didn't like because it was a really good experience and I fabulously I really enjoyed it. Um, the fact that what they've split it up into eight days and I for me this made some of the days just a little bit too short. I would have preferred, having done it, I think they probably should have made it six days. And maybe it's just because um, the more hiking you do, you get used to walking longer distances. Maybe they're aiming for people who aren't used to walking such you – know, in Australia, we tend to, to walk longer distances. Yeah. Um, so maybe they've sort of targeted more at a European audience. Um, that's probably a very minor negative, but yeah. And it sounds like, as you said, you know, it, it, it sounds like there's plenty of side routes you can wander off and explore and – um, you know, if you feel like doing something else and, and taking those opportunities, it's it's certainly there. Yeah, typically um, a lot of these side routes are marked in German and I'm, I'm thinking, <laughs> oh, yeah, I don't really understand what that means and and uh, get home at night and read about the thing you missed and you think, oh, I should have gone down that side path. That extra two kilometres was really worth going down. <laughs> I should have been better planned. Now, you mentioned before um, about a guidebook. I mean, have you, are, are there good guidebooks on this uh, this trail? Yes, uh, there are. There's a fabulous website that we use consistently and it gives you track elevations, things along the way to see a really good write-up of what, what you would expect and uh, an interactive map that went along with each of the stages. Of course, you had to do the eight days to, for that to work work that way. If you did six days, it would be a bit difficult. You'd be swapping from pages to pages there were guidebooks that did the same sort of thing but went into more detail about uh, all the geological processes and all the uh, the vegetation types and and all the culture and so on but they also have a very large national park center in the towns called bad shondau and uh, in that national park center they had a, an amazing interactive display for the entire region and it explained all of the things in the guidebook so not really necessary to buy the guidebook in my opinion you could actually stick with the, the website. Good to have an interactive map on your, your phone, though. I used um, Mappy. It's a, um, a bit like Maps.me or, or some of the, uh, All Trails, some of those. Yeah, Mappy is a, an Eastern European one, and it had all of the trails, the Malaveg, and all the side trails and everything on it. So, And it showed you exactly where you were at, at any one time. So it, it uses GPS function on, on your phone. Okay. Now, speaking of phones, did you did do do Australian phones work on this trail, or um, if if you if yes. you if you do roaming, or yes, uh, I didn't do roaming. I used a thing called Aerolo, and Aerolo is um, if you've got if you're going to use a virtual sim on your phone, most of the modern phones now have a virtual sim, so you don't need to put a sim card in. So you just buy it online and. Um, it activates, and then you can use the internet um, anywhere throughout throughout Europe. So, and it was good good internet coverage, good phone reception all through the the region. Okay, That's... a bit a bit in contrast to some of the areas in Australia. All right, now who would you recommend this trail for? Uh, I mean, you know, is it one something that every hiker is going to enjoy, or is there a you mentioned fitness level before? Is is there anyone you wouldn't recommend it for? Yeah, certainly. Um, Anyone who's got any disability, uh, physical disability, would struggle because there are stairs galore. There are, like I said, it's up and down all day long, every day. So there would be parts you could certainly do, but you certainly couldn't do the whole thing. It would make it very awkward. People who enjoy climbing and clambering and, and exploring, that's for you. It really is. 
there's so much to do. It was so much fun. The little hidey holes everywhere, and the kid the kids would love it. Anyone who enjoys culture, like there's so much variety of culture on the on the trail. And to give you an example, Tim, we uh, we finished our hike one day, and we heard that there was a a village fair on at this little village. So we made our way to the village fair, and they had typical um, 70s, 80s. Um, German pop music being played by a band in a big marquee and no one was sitting there listening to them. We we sat down and listened. And then outside in the uh, in the open, there was mainly beer drinking. It seemed like that would mean the main pastime. But um, towards the afternoon, they started this competition where they had this big trough and they filled a beer stein with water. As, as far as I understood, it, it used to be filled with beer, but they filled the beer stein with water and the thing was to slide the beer stein down this trough to make the beer stein finish as close to the end without falling off the trough onto the ground. And this was being run by the mayor who was wearing a pair of shorts and a t-shirt, but with his big uh, mayoral medallion chain thing around his neck. And uh, it was, it was a fun event. And, and it just, you felt like you're in part of the community. Like it was all the locals. There were no tourists there other than us. And in fact, they were so intrigued that we had turned up, they gave us free beers. <laughs> so, not a lot to, to not like about that. Okay, so one final question. Where to next? What's your next great goal or next great hiking adventure? Yeah, we um, haven't had a real chance to think about it, but we've made a rash decision. So <laughs> I saw the other day there were some cheap fares being offered and I just, I don't know, we've only been home a couple of months. and So we booked a, a fare to Japan later this year, right at the end of this year, and we're going to hike some of the pilgrim trails i hope you don't ask me the names of any of them because i haven't done the research yet but the plan is we're going to go for about a month and do do a lot of um, multi-day hikes and explore some of the good japanese culture uh visit tea houses and do tea ceremonies and that's the aim anyway Okay, so we've been talking with Mike Railton about this trip on the malaveg hiking trail in germany mike thanks for taking your time to catch back up with us yeah my pleasure tim We hope you've enjoyed listening to Mike Railton recounting his journey on the Malaveg hiking trail in Germany. And if you haven't already done so, I'd recommend going to the show notes of this podcast on the Australian Hiker website. We've just got a small number of photos that give a bit of an overview. Uh, and I must admit, I did ask Mike to send me a series from Hero Shots, and uh, there are, you know, there's quite a few. <laughs> yeah, there's only there's only about eight photos in total, but they, they just give you an overview, and it. It really looks like a lovely little trail. There's no doubt about that. What was interesting was that it appeals to all sorts of different walkers and hikers, and and it's almost like there's something there for everybody. Yeah, I was going to say if you're looking for a three month through hike, this is probably not it. You know, it's, <laughs> it's 116 kilometres. The recommendation is to do it in eight days. And Mike did say through his interview that you know you could quite easily do it in six, but also there's a lot of off-trail shoots and branches you can pick and choose as you go. So very quickly, your 116-kilometre trail could end up being another 20 or 30 kilometres longer if you chose to do some of those side trails. And I think this is where doing your research beforehand rather than just turning up, uh, because Mike did say that the side trails, the signage was in German, which is lovely if you speak German or and read German. Uh, but, yeah, uh, the main trail itself – 
not a problem, but they're the off offshoots until you know what you're looking at or you have the guidebook to say this is this is why you should go down this route. Um, you know, there's just so much of a choose-your-own-adventure about this trail itself. It's the kind of thing that comes from a trail that has been used for living as well. And so, you know, it's not just been built specifically because of hiking and walking. Um, it's it's part of the community in, in many ways. And so I, I liked hearing about uh, the cultural aspects of it and the the painter's way aspect and the artist's way that he thought it should be the artist's way. Um, so, yeah, really interesting one, this one. Yeah, and as you said, you know, the Malaveg apparently translates uh, to uh, painter's, painter's way. way. Yeah, Go figure. <laughs> and, yeah, you look at some of the images and you think this is just a really spectacular-looking little, little, little trail. It's not, it's not little. It's 116 kilometres, but – yeah, you know, it's the sort of thing. If you spread it over eight days, some of the some of the days were only eleven or twelve kilometres. The longer days were over twenty kilometres, uh, and that for most people is a manageable sort of thing on a trail that is, uh, while not overly high in altitude, there's a lot of ups and downs. So, as Mike said, it's not really designed to do the entire trail if you don't have if you're not fully able bodied. Uh, but certainly, if you uh, if you do have any uh, disabilities at all, you can certainly do sections of it. And it seemed, you know, the way in which they did it, which was base themselves and then go out to the trail and and back each day, uh, that provides a lot of opportunity for other people who, you know, perhaps couldn't do some of the sections. You just do the ones that you can. Or alternatively, as you mentioned, you've got the ability, if you do want to camp, to do it as a through-hike, but uh, it, it, it's it's something I'm not quite used to uh, from an Australian perspective is you can't camp in that national park. So, <laughs> so yeah, it's a, it's a day-use national park only. Uh, I don't know what happens there if you decide to throw a tent up and hide <laughs> or whether someone comes along and, 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 and root, you. roots you out and takes you away. <laughs> but uh, it sounds like a great option. And certainly you can, you know, you, I think you were saying there was about three campsites along the way. So you're not, unless you're doing really big days, you're not going to be uh, camping the entire trip. You're going to be camping and maybe spending time in, in hotel or hostels along the way. So I, I think... The way Mike did it is not a bad option where you do actually base yourself in one destination and go out and back, particularly given the, the excellent public transport systems yeah, available. Yeah, that's right. And the, if you're staying in one of the locations that charges you the, from what I can understand, the, the one euro a night charge, that's pretty cheap for public transport. Yeah, that's pretty good value, isn't it? And uh, not to mention the cost of the beer, though. <laughs> that, that's not, Yeah, we won't quite promote that one, but that's very weird, isn't it? Now, Mike was saying, I did, we did ask Mike about what the best time of the year to, to do this walk was, and, and, and by the sound of it, you can pretty much any do time. it. Any time. <laughs> the sound of it. Um, I don't know if I'd want to do it in, uh, you know, if I was only going to do it once, I don't, I don't know if I'd want to do it in, in full midwinter. Midwinter. But, mm. yeah, you've got the option there. Uh, but certainly, if I had a choice, I'd probably be looking at either spring uh, or or autumn, and I think my choice would probably be for autumn. So, sort of mid to late September into mid October would probably be the time to after aim. the school breaks. Yeah, after the school breaks, you need to avoid that, uh, and you know to be able to get the best of the autumn foliage through this area. 
The other thing, apart from the foliage as well, is the uh, uh, the unique geological formations. And again, there's one of the images there, which has got a, a series of almost stone spires that just looks really amazing. So again, it's they call you know they talk, they're calling it a uh, the German version of, of Switzerland, as Mike said. You know, the highest altitude in this whole trail is roughly over just over 500 meters. So it's not huge, but you know, if you are going up and down each day. Uh, you do sort of uh, notice what you're doing, uh, but you're not sort of getting that thousand meter, twelve hundred no, meter sort of changes. No. So it's good in that respect. I think, from my perspective, I, I, mean, I did mention this during the interview. I've I've been so focused on the US as far as their long distance hiking trails and what's available over there. And in fact, the, the podcasts I listen to are US based hiking podcasts. And in all honesty, I don't know whether there are any European-based hiking podcasts. I'm, I'm sure there so, are. Some, someone can tell us, Tim. <laughs> but, um, yeah, you, you sort of realise, and, and this year in particular, I've discovered a lot of trails that really excite me. I mean, apart from things like the Camino, but there sounds like there's some really good trails through Europe uh, that I just hadn't even thought about before. Uh, and it's not for... Not any particular reason. It's just I've been so focused on the US. And from Mike's perspective, this was actually the second hike he did on the uh, the overseas trip that he did. Uh, and this sounds like there's just so much good hiking there you just don't tend to think about. And again, it, mm. as I said, it's not for want of trying. It's just you don't tend to hear about it in Australian magazines or you don't tend to see about it. It all tends to be US-focused. Well, it does require you to spend a bit of time, though, and, you know, most of us are time poor. Um, so to get the value out of your overseas trip to Europe, you, you do need to do a few hikes a, along the way. Um, and I guess that's one of the issues that we have at the moment, which is the, the time poor aspect. We hope you've enjoyed this episode on the Malaveg hiking trail uh, in Germany. Uh, it's one of these ever-growing list of things to do that we want to that we'll be trying to do over the coming years but again given the the distance of it it's not as if it's going to take up a, a, a number of weeks to go through and do uh, you know if it's an eight-day trail it's only if you're going there for two or three weeks you can squeeze it in and do other things at the same time so I think it's it's well worth considering and well worth looking at one final comment I'd make is we do have some uh, the links to the website as well as uh, uh, other links that, that might be helpful to you to see if this is something you might want to do as well. Okay, that's all for this week's episode. We hope you've enjoyed. Bye for now. And bye from me.